And hello, here we go, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. I'm thrilled you're here today. My name, of course, is Eddie Cohn, host, creator, producer, editor, aficionado of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral, and you're in for a wonderful conversation. Today, I welcome Joanne C. Gerstner to the show. And first off, thank you so much to my friend Matt Derry, who suggested I reach out to her. And she's just fantastic. She's so accomplished. I have to read all the different accolades, different uh, sort of things that she's involved in. Uh, Joanne, first of all, she can be found on Twitter at Joanne C. Gerstner. She's an award-winning multi-platform sports journalism. She also works at the School of Journalism at Michigan State. Uh, but she's an author, researcher. She is the co-leader of the sports journalism program at Michigan State. Uh, Her work has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, ESPN, the Detroit News. She also wrote a book, Back in the Game, which was honored with the National 2017 Clarion Award for Best Nonfiction. It focuses on youth concussions and sports, and it's aimed at coaches, athletes, and parents. And in 2019, Governor Gretchen Whitmer appointed Gerstner as a commissioner to the Michigan's Task Force on Women in Sports. Uh, she's written about the Olympics, women and, women and men's soccer, the French and U.S. Open, obviously the NBA, the Stanley Cup, um, the list, you know, tennis, golf, the list goes on. So it's a wonderful conversation. I felt very lucky. It's, it was one of those talks where I could have spoken to her for hours because if you didn't know already, I love sports. I, I think my cats and sports and music are sort of at the top of the list, you know. So we, we talk about, gosh, we talk about the NFL, how COVID's impacted the NFL and the NBA, the bubble. We talk about contracts, Adrian Wojnarowski, and I wonder if, you know, him talking about contracts all the time, is that really good for our society? We also talk about equality in sports, men and women. We talk about salaries. We talk about LeBron James. And I also was really fascinated talking to her about athletes and their lives post-career and just a lot of the depression that they go through trying to sort of figure out what there's going to be doing with the rest of their lives. So honestly, it's it's a wonderful talk. Great way to end the year. I'm not sure if this will be the last podcast. I have a hunch it will be, although I have an episode swirling around in my head that I want to record, but not sure I'll have the time to get there. So you can find Joanne on Twitter at Joanne C. Gerstner. You can just type in her name, Joanne Gerstner, in Google, and you can find her you know, find her book, find her website, find all of her articles. She's really intelligent, a great talk. And yeah, I, I'm sure you'll absolutely love it. So you know where to find me on Instagram and Twitter at Eddie Cohn. Please say hello t- and tell me what you thought about the show. I would love to hear from you. Um, ask me any questions. You know I'm a musician. I just released a new song. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes. Head over to eddiecone.bandcamp.com. You can buy it there. I have a new music video, which you can watch at iameddiecone.com. A lot of stuff going on, writing a book, still recording podcasts, producing music. So there you go. Again, thank you, Matt Derry, for recommending Joanne. She's just amazing. Thanks, Joanne, for listening and being on the show. And always thanks to you for listening, supporting, and being a part 
of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. You remind me of myself only in, in one regard. You have your hands on a lot. So to sort of, you know, figure out where to focus for our four-hour conversation is going to be challenging, but uh, I'm kidding about the four hours. <laughs> where did your love of sports begin? Uh, childhood. I've always been a sports fan. Uh, growing up in Detroit, I was obviously exposed to four major professional sports teams in Michigan and Michigan State. And my parents, uh, we were huge soccer fans. And we also get the Canadian broadcasting service in Detroit. So I got to watch, you know, World Cup skiing and all kinds of stuff that wasn't normally on television in the United States. So we always love sports, and I'm a pretty good athlete myself. And also, I had the blessing of being born, you know, post-Title IX. So there were many opportunities open to girls like me that were not available to women from previous generations. So it was kind of um, in the right place at the right time, and things just worked out. Yeah. And then so I mean, what did you play? Uh, I played everything. So I played softball. Uh, I played tennis in college. So tennis was my favorite thing. Uh, but I did figure skating, I played basketball, I played volleyball, I played golf. So I pretty much whatever my parents swimming, whatever my parents signed us up for, we played this is myself and my younger brother. And, you know, we just enjoyed being out there and having fun. And like I said, it was proud of part of the generation post-Title IX boom where, you know, kids, 70s, 80s, 90s, girls were out there playing with the boys. There were no limits. What's What do you mean post-Title uh, IX? What is, what is that? Well, Title IX is a revolutionary law passed in 1972. It's actually an educational act that ensured that girls and boys in public school settings have equal access. So if a boy was given access to an art class after school, the girls had to be in it too. And that opened the doorway for sports because a lot of school systems offered a wide array of sports for boys, but not many for girls. So that brought about girls being able to play basketball and to do swimming and to play tennis and all the things, you know, that we see today and take for granted, you know, you wouldn't have had a Mia Hamm, you wouldn't have had a Lindsey Vaughn, you wouldn't have had a lot of the women, you know, even a Serena Williams, you would not have had this conversation of the vitality of women being both athletes, but also sports being part of your childhood without Title IX that opened a lot of doors. Wow. And I'm just curious because I, I didn't know any of that. Uh, I didn't know about Title IX. How did you even become, because I'm sure as a kid, you were not investigating the internet probably wasn't around. It wasn't around. We're probably about the same age, I'm just guessing. So, you know, it's like, I mean, did you have experiences or, or did you want to try out for something and you couldn't or, you know, what sort of what made you interested in that area? Um, well, obviously, as a sports writer, you know, in my professional career, Title IX is one of the central tenets of 
a lot of discussions around high school sports, about access, about coaching, about, you know, are the facilities for the female athletes the same as male athletes? And we've seen the fight for equity go all the way up to the, you know, to the very top now with the women's U.S. soccer team fighting for equal pay and equal facilities and equal per diem as the men. So this fight is on all levels. And as a female sports writer, obviously, you know, knowing what the laws are and understanding the impact of Title IX, I mean, Title IX is one of the most um, sweeping laws that has been passed probably the last 50 years that impacts U.S. education and equity. So it's hmm. it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking something topically, but let's actually go back to you for a moment. At what point did you did you ever think about playing professionally, or did you know going into college that you just you wanted to become a journalist and, and sort of go down that road? Well, no tennis player <laughs> uh, that ever attends college usually turns pro, so that's the sign from God. And I was not that good. I was good enough to play, and I enjoyed it. I'm only five foot six, and I got destroyed in college. I mean, I, I've got no shame of saying it. I mean, I. You know, I was playing women that are six foot one and the wingspan alone. I mean, I can't generate the same torque on a serve. I'm not, you know, I'm not a condor up there at the net, but I enjoyed what I did. And I've always known I want to be a sports journalist. I mean, I can tell you there's things back to fourth grade where I said this is what I want to do because wow. I come from a family that has journalism in the blood. I've always been a really good writer. I've been very verbal from a very young age and I love sports, but more importantly, I grew up in a town of Detroit that had women as sports writers covering major things. So I never knew a world that did not have women as bylines in the newspaper. I never knew a world that didn't have women on television. So I had no issue with seeing myself as someone that could follow them until I got to college. And I had some very well-meaning professors who said, you do understand that women don't really do this job. Hmm. Like, what do you mean? well, you're going to go through a lot and maybe it's not worth it. And maybe you want to cover politics or do something else, but are you really sure you want to do sports? And I was like, yeah, I want to do it. And, you know, I've been very lucky that the women that came before me, I'm like in the third generation of female sports writers. So, I, you know, mid to late seventies was the first crop, second crop in 80, third crop nineties, you know, so you can kind of chart, you know, we're, we're still relatively new in the profession. Our oldest people are in their 60s, those women all reach back and it's like, hey, you know, you know, Christine Brennan from USA Today, if you need a mentor, come talk to me. So I, I was very lucky to have the right people around me to mentor me, but also I'm really good at what I do. You know, I'm, I'm an excellent writer. I know my stuff. I work hard and I really make an effort to try to be fair in my journalism and talk about the issues that I think are important. So I've, I've been doing the right things, but I've also had the right doors open for me. So, and I'm very conscious of that. There's obviously a huge push over the last, I mean, 20, 30, 40, 50 years for equality. And I understand the intention, of course, but sometimes I also think, we're trying to create um, a level playing field that's just, it's not possible. Um, men are better at some things than women are better at and vice versa. Um, and then I think about the money factor. I mean, obviously, um, 
I, I think TNT, I don't know, but you would know better than me, TNT is probably getting paid more advertising for their men's as opposed to if they were playing the WNBA. Um, mm-hmm. Are we ever going, is it, I guess also, um, not that there's this quote unquote boys club and that's a good thing, but you know, is it okay that women have their thing and men have their thing? And um, I, you know what I'm sort of getting at? Um, well, that's, uh, a super complicated question because obviously there's sports in which you can do a direct comparison like tennis. You know, there's Roger Federer and there's Serena Williams. Roger Federer and Serena Williams make the same amount of prize money when they win Wimbledon. The check is the same when they're handed to them. So we have prize money equality, but in terms of advertising, it might not be the same. So, you know, Serena might make more from Nike, but Roger might make more because he has, you know, uh, Lindor, the Swiss chocolate maker. So, you know, when you see direct comparison, but obviously when you break that down further, um, you know, areas such as golf, the men make more than the women. That's just the way it is. Uh, WNBA versus the NBA, same thing. But you also have to keep in mind the economies of scale. It took the NBA almost 50 years to get to where it is now. I mean, if you go back in the 60s and even the 70s, the, you know, the NBA was nothing. It was not making money. It wasn't until the 80s, TV contracts, advertising, the coolness factor of having Bird and Magic and the Dream Team into the early 90s, that propelled the sport into a different level. So women's sports, again, are relatively new. We've only had the WNBA for about 20, 25 years. Women's soccer is now starting to explode around the world. So the areas where we see growth, the growth is going quickly. But this whole notion of equality in terms of pay, I don't think it is truly reflective of the market. You know, you need advertisers, you need TV eyeballs. But that being said, look at the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. The ratings for the Women's World Cup were through the roof last time. Um, what's the most popular sports of the Olympics? Swimming, diving, figure skating, gymnastics. Those hmm. are all women. Yeah, that's so. a really, no, that's a great point. It's it's interesting. I'm just thinking about the sports that I typically watch. And, I, you know, I I love the NBA. Uh, but when I've watched the WNBA, I'm just, I'm bored. And it's it's not that I'm being, I'm not trying to be offensive here, but it's just, to me, it's not the same um it doesn't have the same entertainment value to my eyeballs as opposed to when I'm watching men's basketball. But you bring up a great point. When I watch the Olympics, uh, women's track, swimming, gymnastics, I, I, I love those just as much as I – maybe even more than when I watch the men's sport. I guess the tricky part here is, is, as you sort of brought up, where is the advertising dollars going? Uh, but is that an excuse? Is that fair? Um I'm, and then again, you know, I, I don't know, you would know better than me, but I get the sense of WNBA games, they're clearly not charging as much, you know, for tickets as they are. It's, um, so, yeah, it's complicated. Well, it's super complicated. And the other thing that I really think you need to also think about is your conditioning. You are used to watching men playing basketball. Hmm. And me too. That's what we grew up. So the whole concept of seeing the women's game, which is naturally different because, you know, most a lot of those women can dunk. But the whole kind of, the, you know, if you really talk to basketball purists, people that are really into the intricacies of the game, they actually like the women's game more than the men's because the women actually run more plays and are more the technical basketball. The guys are more the highlight show. I'm going to break you down. I'm going to take you around. You know, I'm going to, you know, Steph Curry taking a three from God knows where, you know, Durant going in for a rim rocker dunk. That's not going to happen in the women's game. But here's the thing. 
you're also conditioned to watching men play basketball. And it's going to take, I think, the next few generations. I mean, think, think about the flip side. We're probably the only country in the world in which if you go ask little kids like, hey, who plays soccer in the U.S.? They're going to answer women. Yeah. So you see our women, women winning and playing. Our guys have a long way to catch up because obviously the the men's game is, is incredible at the national and the world level. But it's conditioning. And we have come a long way from allowing our athletes to be big and strong and amazing because back in the day, think of how it was. The most successful female athletes were tiny, super feminine, almost to the point of being like Russian ballerinas or figure skaters or divers. While the majority of women's sports, you know, I mean, you got to be big, you got to be strong, you got to be conditioned. And I think we have really redefined in the Western world anyway, the whole concept of what a woman can look like, what a woman can do as an athlete. And frankly, um, you know, women like Martina Navratilova with, with weight training and conditioning ushered in a whole new way of treating the female body as an athletic machine and not this delicate piece of China that can't run the Boston Marathon because you'll never be able to have a child, that kind of crap. So we've got we've come a long way. It's funny. I, you know, part of my – not the reason why I brought up my podcast a couple of years ago, and this will relate to sports, is I, th I think social media is, is really ruining the world. And just for example, I think it's created a world where eyeballs it, – it's the most – important sense like all the other senses touch feel hearing but then i start to think as you're talking you know it's sad but katarina witt and i'm suddenly forgetting the really attractive blonde tennis player uh, over the last 10 years well, um, well they had steffi graf i don't know who you're thinking about after her the, um uh, we had Celis, and then you had Capriati. I think no, <laughs> and then, but gosh, and then yeah, the, after that you had Carolina Wozniacki. So I'm a, trying to think of who had the blonde Gosh, there was another team. one. It um, but I'm starting to think it's sad. But gosh, are we really just that superficial? And and you know, the Chris Everett boys. She was she was obviously great, but did it? It certainly probably didn't hurt that she was attractive. Um, is is this just sort of a? Is this just like ingrained in us DNA that we're just instantly, I don't know. What do you think? You're not agreeing with me, but. Uh, well, you know, obviously physical beauty has always been an element of society. I mean, you go back to the Greek classics, Helen of Troy or, you know, Cleopatra or, you know, you know, I mean, you could literally rattle off. There's always been the Kim Kardashian uh, beauty first philosophy throughout history, throughout time. But I think the difference is we as a society are more open into accepting women for being sweaty and having muscles. And, you know, I mean, just the idea of women boxing in the Olympics. If you had said that to somebody in the 1950s, they would have fallen over. And now if you watch Clarissa Shields, she's a beautiful boxer. She's technical. She's nasty. She'll kill you. And that's everything you'd want in a boxer. It just happens to be she's a woman. So we have changed. But the, also, you have to remember, look who's coming up. Us, women. Hmm. We're the majority in society right now. And we, for many years, up until, you know, again, probably 70s, 80s, 90s, were not acknowledged as a group of sports fans. Everything was by men, for men, with men in mind. Well, you now are leaving more than 50% of the potential viewing audience behind. And, you know, Serena Williams is beautiful and there's no reason why 
people should take anything less than that she is both feminine, she is an amazing athlete, she's a successful entrepreneur, and oh, by the way, her trophy case will outlive us all. So I think we've changed a lot. And, and the good news is I see progress, but I'm not ignorant to say that the WNBA will be equal to the NBA. That's not what equality is. Equality is getting what is fair, the market, and frankly, not having denigration happen when every single time a female athlete makes a statement of power. I mean, look at what's happened at Vanderbilt with that amazing woman who's been kicking you know, extra points and stuff like that. The amount of mm. guys that have come out on social media, to your point, to say absolutely dumbass things has been historic. And here's the crazy thing. These jackasses who are ripping on her that, oh, she's going to get crushed and the women shouldn't play. A, she is an elite level college athlete. She's six foot two <laughs> right. in fantastic shape. And oh, by the way, have you looked around and see the size of your average male kicker in the game? I went and looked. In the Big Ten, there are four guys between five foot six and five foot eight. And they're about 140 pounds. Are we worrying for them? I, I think we have some people that are needing to be dragged into the modern world. But the good news is this. I don't waste my time on them. Yeah. Because there's enough people in the real world with me. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's almost like they're, it's like guys sadly need this place. I used to watch these shows on HGTV where the guy would say, oh, it's my man cave. And it's, it's, it's so sort of ar um, uh, archaic and pathetic in this weird sort of way. And, and I bet a lot of men are worried because the locker room is probably where they can just be, um, you know, masculine and ridiculous. And the idea that a woman is in there invading their space probably really pisses them off or threatens them. The people that, from my experience, as a woman who has gone into many locker rooms to do my job, the people that are offended are 99.9% out of 100, the ones that are never going in there. Hmm. I've never had any problems with any athletes. I've never had any problems with any coaches. And the people that are telling me that I'm immoral, indecent, or whatever else they want to throw at me are the ones that are never doing my job, don't know what it's like, and are casting their own frameworks of religiosity, toxic masculinity, or whatever else you want to put on there um, into that. And you just learn to ignore the ignorance. And, uh, you know, a <laughs> locker room is the least lovely place on the planet. You know, honestly, <laughs> I mean, it's stinky. Uh, there's people cutting off, you know, bloody ankle wraps, um, People, you know, screaming because they're frustrated. Uh, but that's the where, you know, back obviously pre-pandemic, that's where you talk to people. You talk to people after something happened. And I have always been treated with respect. And if anything, I think the ignorance of people that want to project whatever their sick fantasies are of what I'm doing in there or the athletes are doing there will never have any bearing to reality because they don't want that reality. So, you know, you just kind of like, okay, that's cool. And just move on. It's just not worth wasting your time on. At some point though, did you, cause I think you're a professor now at Michigan state. Yes. So I'm curious, I'm not trying to get any dirt here, but um, is it just, did something, not necessarily something happen or is it just, did you eventually just want to get out of that 
journalism world and being in the locker room and and moving on to I still do it. Oh, so I you still, still do it. okay? So what do you yeah. what are you still doing? Give me some examples or what I didn't realize uh, you're still. I, I well, for example, today I'm writing three stories for the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, on different athletes preparing for Tokyo. I write for the New York Times, so you know I you know pop open to different locker rooms. I'm doing a bunch of different stuff on uh, features for different magazines. So I'm still very much in the game. Okay. So the I, the transition to teaching at the university. What are you What are you teaching I'm, over there? I'm doing both. I'm doing both. Okay. Yeah. So basically, I have two full time jobs. You know, yeah. so I have my my writing career, but I also, uh, in terms of sports journalism, I'm helping build the sports journalism program at the Michigan State School of Journalism, and uh, we've got a ton of students that want to get into the business, whether it's play by play or multimedia or doing social media or team relations. So I make, I, I created classes. Uh, we have a study abroad to Paris and Rome that I created. And, you know, we've got a great team of people and, you know, we've got a lot of students that are coming here to learn sports journalism. So me doing the job in the real world helps me in the classroom because sure. I, I could talk to them about exactly what I just did and kind of almost do like a live autopsy and we do the real. And that's my whole thing is, you know, books are great. I love textbooks, but I'm going to teach you the real. I'm going to teach you the stuff you need to know. We're going to do it for real. So we cover Michigan State athletics. We do stuff for the community, um, about community sports. And obviously now during the pandemic, we've been telling a lot of stories about school systems that are struggling because, you know, Friday nights, you know, the booster club makes a lot of money at the gate, you know, for scholarship funds or to help kids that maybe don't have access to shoes you know, to compete, things like that. So, you know, there's a real impact of sports not being in our communities the way they used to be. And I really want um, my students, and this is usually senior level, to really look for the nuance, look for the people. Let's tell the stories of what's happening in the world through the lens of sports. So I feel very lucky that I can do both. I can, I, you know, as I joke with my students, I can still very much hit the fastball in the sports writing world. But I'm also here to show you now how to hit. I'm like your hitting coach. So, you know, yeah. let's get in the cage and start, you know, hopefully following fewer of them off and hitting them more straight. So it's it's fun. I'm very lucky. There's something that I wanted to ask you, and it's 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 kind of bothering me. Um, don't worry, nothing that you did. Um, I am, you know I'm a big sports fan. I lean more towards basketball, F- football. I'll watch during the playoffs. Same with baseball. And there's something that's bothering me. Like this, I can't even fathom. Similarly to you, I still feel very lucky that I have my health. I have a job. But I know that what's going on right now is ripping this country apart. And yeah. I, I just, I'm, we're not going to get into details. And then when I opened up Twitter and see Adrian Wojnarowski saying, you know, Anthony Davis just signed this $170, $180 million deal. Um, and, and the NFL is still going right now. And it's sort of mm-hmm. like, it kind of, to me, I, I'm sorry, but I think there's some, some major hypocrisy here. And I'm not, I don't want to get too much into the COVID thing, but I can't, because I know it's easy for some people to say, oh, well, they're testing and they're being cautionary. And, you know, they had the bubble in the NBA. Um, but this sort of just seems like this is an example of money and money talks and money leads. And um, it's like, let's, let's just, all you, all you small business owners, you can't work. 
Um, the government's giving out this little bit of money. Now they sort of stopped. But the NFL, you can keep doing your thing because you're a billion-dollar corporation and, and, and America needs the, still needs the NFL. It, there's something that feels off to me. Well, you know, the argument that the sports leagues will make back to you is, well, you know, we can be a source of comfort during a time that's crazy. You know, we're entertainment. We can, you know, like the NFL – Obviously, it's not set a bubble, so they've had some, you know, <laughs> look, just look what happened with Carolina. I mean, we can go through all the teams that have had massive COVID issues. But, you know, the NBA, the WNBA, and the NHL did really well. And they did have, you know, their competitions and, you know, got through to the finals and all that other stuff. And their argument to you, you will be, well, if we can operate safely and we have the resources to do so, why not? Your small business doesn't have the resources that we do, which is true. And um, obviously, both the federal government and the individual states felt it was a priority to allow professional sports to continue. But look what's happening at the college level. I mean, I'm in Big Ten country. Big Ten schedule has been Swiss cheesed, you know, by Wisconsin going out and then Penn State and then Ohio State. I mean, I think Michigan State's one of the few teams that I know of, and maybe Northwestern, that has not been completely decimated by a COVID wave and missed some games. That's where you're starting to ask, well, wait a second. These are student athletes playing for scholarships. Are we now terming college students as essential workers? Because basically, let's be clear, that's what we term professional athletes as essential workers. We put them in that same protective class to let them operate business as usual. Obviously, no fans, no vendors, you know, all that other stuff. However, the reason we do it is because of television. We really don't need fans. We have proven that you know, the ticket prices don't matter, the suites don't matter, but having the games on ESPN or having the Masters with no fans, those are our priorities in terms of both a media standpoint and in terms of a league standpoint. Now, all these leagues, you know, have player associations, they have unions. So the unions agreed to this too. So, I mean, the players at some point were asked permission and they said yes. So I don't think we can compare the overall, but, you know, if I'm a student athlete at UCLA, I had no choice whether or not I want to play football, basketball, the best I could do to be opt out. But would I keep my scholarship? Who knows? We have stories of people that opted out for really good reasons, like their health, and they got their scholarships yanked. So are you, don't play, no scholarships. So you, it's a very complicated mess. Are you telling me that, let's just say I'm from Cleveland, the Cleveland Browns, they don't, again, you're educating me here. So fans, are the, are the are fans getting their money back, first of all, for this for this year with the tickets or the Detroit Lions? Uh, well, what they what they did is two things. Number one, a lot of teams are like, "Hey, um, you put a deposit down or whatever, you know, uh, for season tickets. Um, if you need a refund, we'll give it to you. But how about we just hang on to it for next season, and that way you're all set." <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so they, basically because of that, um, and I guess the majority of the money is coming from advertisers or, or corporate box or corporations. So I'm sure they need the money of the fans, but it, they can get by 
easily with, with whatever they're getting from advertising. The TV money dwarfs anything you make in the stadium. Seriously. I mean, it beyond dwarfs it. And it's both the local TV revenue, the national TV revenue. And, you know, it, um, in terms of, you know, the TV networks, you know, they want the revenue. I mean, look at the hit that CBS and TNT took by not having the NCAA basketball tournament. That's almost a billion dollars right there. So you just can't go snap your fingers and invent a sporting event. NBC took a bath with no Tokyo Olympics. Hmm. That went down the tubes. You know, and then add in the other things like the World Series and the Masters and the Stanley Cup playoffs. And can you imagine if the world had been normal having a Lakers, you know, uh, NBA finals, you know, in the wake of the year of losing Kobe? That would have been just, you know, insane. Yeah. But you know, so they're trying to get as much as they can out of a diminished pie. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's limping along. Let's put it that way. It's the, it's there, but it's not the same. Do you think though that athletes are, should get this much money? And I guess my, my question in, in addition to that, um, again, I'm a big basketball fan. I I'm from Cleveland. I love LeBron James. Um, but I, I, I didn't really like watching the bubble. I, it just, to me, like fans add that certain nuance, that energy, you know, it's, 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 it's hollow without the fans and you can pump mm-hmm. up as much fake noise as you want. Uh, but I'm wondering if this is, you know, were the ratings for the bubble at the NBA, were they lower because of, of the quotes on, on jerseys or were they feeling the same way that I felt where it felt flat? Is this going to ruin relationship between fans and sports I, I don't know you don't think so I don't I don't think so I don't and you know you kind of bring up some different things so when you bring up the money issue uh, when people bring this up uh, I say hey Eddie your employer is willing to sign you to a contract for 176 million dollars are you saying no that's way too much I don't deserve that money that's the economy of scale that is the money they're dealing with so if, frankly if they don't want to to be paying that money, they're not going to pay that money. Let, so that's let, kind of. Let me ask you. Know. Let me ask you though. Yeah, what is the point of Adrian Wojnarowski reeling off these contracts on his Twitter feed? I mean, like, I, I don't know what what good does that do. What harm does it do? Well, I think psychologically it may do harm, and then in fa- and in fact, well. It may actually create other agents of other players then saying, oh, well, this guy, Tristan Thompson, got I'm just throwing out numbers, oh, 80, 80 they million. They all know. No, they all know. Well, then, but what is it doing? Um, uh, I don't know. You don't, so you don't think it's a big deal? I, well, I, having covered the NBA for 10 years, I, I guess I'm used to it. I, I don't think it's a big deal because, number one, that's what guys get paid. And number two... If you at all are an agent worth your salt, you already know what the team's salary cap is, what the other contracts are, and what you're dealing with. And, um, you know, I think the NBA in a lot of ways, you know, you know, if you look at the demographics of who's watching what, the NBA is probably the best position of all the sports because it skews the youngest. NBA does well with highlights. NBA does well with connecting with that crossover of entertainment, you know, hip hop. LeBron James, you know, is a mega superstar across many realms. Uh, baseball doesn't have anybody like that. I mean, God bless Mike Trout, but <laughs> most people could not pick out Mike Trout if he was walking around downtown Cleveland outside of the ballpark. Um, NHL is still a very much a fringe sport. I mean, it's huge here in Detroit, obviously, with the Red Wings, but, 
you know, the majority of North America is not like it's Stanley Cup finals are not must watch TV. Uh, football, I think, is taking the biggest hit in all of this. And you mentioned some of the, you know, the political statements, uh, you know, the whole Colin Kaepernick thing. There is a lot of things hitting football right now. And, you know, you've got a lot of really if you think about the difference between the NBA and the NFL. NFL is very traditional, kind of stodgy, you know, a lot of really old guys owning teams. Uh, they don't, they're very risk adverse, extremely mm. risk adverse. The NBA, on the other hand, is willing to change their jerseys at the drop of a hat. You know, they added music, you know, you know they, they've really embraced culture, pop culture, uh, much more, which has put them in connection with a younger audience. Baseball skews the oldest for an audience. And baseball is in trouble, too, because people are like, I don't have four hours to sit here and watch a game. And the real seam heads that I know will also argue the whole datification of baseball has removed a lot of the random elements. Like if you're constantly shifting your infield and outfield to match a spray pattern that your computer came up with, okay, well, you're going to get the out, but the randomness of funky stuff happening and the pitchers throwing 100 and, you know, I mean, it's, the, the game has almost, the technology, to your point about how technology changes things, the technology, I think, has hit baseball the hardest. Hmm. And I don't blame people for using it. I mean, if I'm a pitcher, you know, a really good pitcher, I want to know where people are hitting my stuff, so I don't throw it there. Understood. But our sports leagues are pretty much i think maxed out in what they can do for revenue only so many people are going to watch tv only so many people are going to buy your jerseys only so many people can fit in the stadium so where do you make more revenue and for some of the leagues that will be going overseas you know can you take china can you you know get people in europe interested in the nba more you know that's why the nfl has been going to london they're trying to expand the pie or to, you know mexico city and you know, some of it's greed, but some of it is straight up their corporations here to make business. I mean, they sports is business. That's all it is. I yeah, mean, we I, love it for all the good reasons, but bottom line, they got to make cash money, and that's what it is. You know, I'm not trying to be devil's advocate here, but. I just feel like we just live in this oddly hypocritical world, and you know we, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we talk, yeah, so. we talk about equality though, and I and 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 I, I'm thinking about Daryl Morey and the whole NBA story in China, and you know Black Lives Matter, and they're wearing these jerseys, but the reality is is that when it came to China and what's going on there, everybody shut up, and um, I just read an article in the New York Times today where. Um, because of the trade deals that Donald Trump signed with China, they were going to make significantly less money. And then we have the pandemic. And guess what? China's revenue over the last year because of what's happened with the pandemic went up by, I don't even remember the percentage, a huge amount. So <laughs> there's just a strange sort of, uh, I guess I get frustrated. I love basketball, but we talk about these problems, inequality, jobs, and then when I see Adrian Warshanowski just bringing up one last time, $180 million deal or something, I just I just think there's something wrong here. Well, I think, you know, I have, and I have this discussion a lot with my students that they love sports. And it's like, okay, I know you love sports. I love sports too. But, 
You have to understand that sports is one of the biggest money-making institutions in this country. I mean, if there's no sports, imagine all the arenas and stadiums that are going to be empty. I mean, it would just it'd be, you know, like the it'd be like the Coliseum in Rome times 100 in every city, you know, in every college. And, you know, understanding that what we love for the emotional connection and obviously you being from Cleveland, you know, I mean, even though the Browns up until this year have tortured everybody, there's something in your heart that you love that, you know, I love, I love the Tigers and the Red Wings. And, but the bottom line is those are all major corporations. It is not much any different than us saying, I love McDonald's or I'm ride or die you know, with Nike, I mean, the spiritual aspect of being a sports fan is very much a religious thing because you believe, you know, you believe mm. they're going to win. You believe in your favorite player. You wear the jersey. But the bottom line is you are a revenue model for this team that happens to do something that you've connected with. And I think that might be a little bit where you're having the issue with Adrian putting out these numbers, because what he does is a overt reminder of the complete commodification of something that we want to see as a pure expression of human athleticism. It is, but it's at a price. Yeah. And I just, I felt inspired to say this, but I, I will say that when Kyrie Irving hit that three over Steph Curry, that was one of the happiest days of my life. And as it should be. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I'm not naive to, and I think about this actually culturally, you know, I'm reading the suicide numbers here uh, in America are just up exponentially. Yes. And I remember like my landlord came outside to visit a couple days ago and it was just great to see him and say hello and, and, uh, and just chat. And these moments of sports community where you come together and share an experience together does lift the spirits. And, and those, are, those, those have been eliminated from our lives. Well, Sports is the perfect combination of community identity. So, yay, Cleveland, right? So we're together bound by, um, by the way, my brother lives in suburban Cleveland, so I can say yay, Cleveland. But, you know, you have that connection of yay, my town. We have an identity. We won. We are something. And then you have the individual team of, yeah, I like X. And then you have the more personal statement of, like, I. this is what I love and this is what I stand for. So there's a lot kind of, you know, I mean, you know, coming from Detroit, if I wear it, you know, the, the old English D hat, that means something around the world. Now, granted, half the people think it means M&M, which is fine. <laughs> I have no problem with that, but it still means something. It's almost like my labeling of my identity. And if you think about all the other things that touch your life from music to, you know, television programs to cultural things, you know, going to a museum, nothing touches you in the same place as sports. You're not going to run out the street and high five everybody when, you know, the museum gets a new Monet and you're not going to jump up and down when there's an the announcement of the McRib coming back to McDonald's. Right. I mean, there's things that we like, but there's things that we love. And think about how we pass down, God knows, especially in Cleveland, the sports lore, you know, the names of all the stuff that's happened in Cleveland and, you know, taking my talents to South Beach, all that stuff. And then obviously the good stuff that's happened, that's part of our social DNA more than anything else. Yeah. I am curious, how has, as a professor, and I, you know, I, I don't flippantly say that I think technology is ruining the world, and I'm not some, you know, um, old man sitting on my front uh, stoop yelling at little kids or something. 
Because I, I use social media. I'm a musician, so I, I, and I, I obviously have a podcast, so I share. And I, I'm working with the company right now to promote some music, and they want me on social media even more. And, you know, I, I understand. But um, I think what's, what you're talking about, actually, with, with these businesses, uh, sports corporations, we are all dealing with the attention economy. And everybody is so distracted. And I was listening to a podcast where things are being created now, knowing that somebody isn't just watching their television. They're watching their television while they're emailing and texting and on Instagram. So, I mean, I mean, how this is a lot here, obviously, to sort of unspool. But um, I guess just in your career um, and then also in your classroom, how have you seen things shifting because of this onslaught of technology? Uh, well, I can just—I'll start with the answer in the classroom. Uh, I have a no technology rule, so I had students that literally were so addicted to their phones. And let me be, be very clear—they're great students, but they're constantly like this. Every time there was a notification on their phone, they had to look. And I'm like, "Why are you looking?" I mean, oh, I don't know. Um, was I looking? They didn't even realize how they were being literally dominated by a little box. And then um, other students had their laptop opened with like five screens that they were watching <laughs> social media, and then they had the phone. So they were going between the two, and they were, you know, so attention, one third to your phone, one third to the computer, one third to the classroom. And so I have a no technology rule that your phone has to be turned over. Um, if we're using our laptops, you know, you need to be present. And that's why I said, you know, your presence both in a big P and a little P way is a gift to everyone else in the class that you have perspectives, you have knowledge and you have things to offer that no one else can. But if you're offering us less than all of you, meaning you're not present in a way that's productive, you're hurting yourself and you're showing disrespect to other people in the room. And I, you know, I was trying to explain to them that, you know, when you get out in the real world, it's going to fire against you in terms of building a reputation as someone who's a good coworker, if you're constantly not paying attention to somebody, that's a sign of disrespect. And even if you're not a disrespectful person, it is still extremely rude. And for a lot of them, it's like a detox the first couple of weeks of class. Like, well, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm really sure. Uh, so that's been, a, that's been a challenge. Another challenge has been that some students, and thankfully a vast minority, think that I'm Siri, that I should be available to answer an email at 2 a.m. on a mm. Saturday night to uh, ask a question about a syllabus that's readily available. I mean, I think the technology has hurt the cognition of this generation that grew up with it, you know, the iPad since they were two years old, because they don't know how to think for themselves. They constantly want someone to give them the answer instead of thinking to the answer and using the technology as a tool to find the answer. And, you know, it's been a challenge, especially as a journalist, we look for the answers. We don't know, we form the questions, but we don't know what the answers are before we start. I don't know what's going to happen in a game before I go there. It's all mystery. I have to live in the moment. And for some students, that is a very disquieting reality because they want to know what the answer is before they start to alleviate any um, concerns or worries they have. The living in the unknown is not very comfortable for some people. And the other thing I will say is this, is the attention spans I find are really challenging. 
And I know I, I teach live, but I have colleagues that teach, you know, with uh, what they call asynchronous or, you know, a video blocks of classes. You can tell how long a student will um, be watching a video based on metrics that we can see. Uh, the majority of the students in some classes will only watch the first three minutes of a 10 minute video. Yeah. That's all they got. I mean, I think, I think this is the biggest problem. I think for, for years, I think it's a hijacking of the human brain. I mean, this will eventually connect over to concussions because I know you wrote a book about that, but before I get there, I, you, you brought up thinking for yourself I think about, you know, I wrote a book and I'm trying to get it published right now. And it took me three years, but it wasn't three years of writing. It was about a year of writing, then taking six months off away from it, and then going back to it and being like, oh, well, that sentence is terrible. You know, I, I need to rewrite that or rework that. Or you, those moments where you read an article or I watch your presentation in class and actually don't say anything, but leave and think about it. The, those moments of thinking and contemplating what I read or digested, they are now being uprooted by likes and Facebook and all these notifications. And I, I just, I, I really, I, I don't see a, a happy outcome out of this. It's hard for me to see how you can navigate uh, that culturally. Well, and think about the other thing that I just see on a college campus. And again, I have great students. They work hard. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the guy from the Simpson, you know, old man yells, yells at cloud type of thing, <laughs> right. but I really see how they constantly have stimulations. They walk into class, you know, with their headphones on. So they're not even walking outside without music on. And for most of them, their music is so loud. I can hear it like from five feet away coming out of their headphones, which is like, wow, that's not good for your ears. But they live <laughs> in a world where I'm completely in my own um, safety pod. Like if I'm wearing, if I'm listening to music or, or of course listening to music and with my phone out at the same time, I don't have to acknowledge your presence. I don't have to notice that something's wrong. I don't have to, you know, notice, wow, that's, it's really pretty. Look at that tree. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they're, it's amazing how inoculated they are from the world. And we, when I have conversations about this, because journalists, we have to be trained to notice things. You have to be present. You have to have a keen eye. And, you know, and I do this with some of my beginner students. I send them out, obviously not now during the pandemic, but, you know, in the good old days when we met in person, I would send them out and say, hey, interview, go find someone at random, ask them three questions and come back. And it's something simple. And they come back and I said, okay, so what color was this person's eyes? I don't know. Um, <laughs> what kind of shoes do they have on? Well, I didn't look. Um, how tall were they? I don't know. <laughs> I said, yeah, but didn't you talk to them? You didn't notice it? No, because we're so used to almost like taking everything away from people. And it, some of them get really disturbed when I ask that question. Like, well, why would I notice what color someone's eyes is? Like, well, because you'd be paying attention and looking them in the eye with respect when you talk to them. When then they come back, well, I don't like talking to strangers. Hmm. Okay. So it's, it's like a social, social cognitive development. And once we work on that and get over it, like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I, I make them write down one thing they noticed on the way to class. And I don't care if it's big, small. And one guy's like, I noticed there's like a girl that sits on the bench 
in the same place every time I come to class. And I notice every day this week she's been eating Doritos. I'm like, great. That's <laughs> awesome. You, you connected with something. And I said, how did you notice the Doritos? It was the weirdest thing. I smelled them. Good. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. But, but before he didn't do that. So it's kind of like plugging them back into the world. And I'm definitely not anti-technology. It's just I'm worried that we're using it to numb ourselves from being in the world. Yeah, I guess my last point, and then I'll, one other question I'll let you go. I, I'm, it's weird. I can't obviously prove that uh, generations now are less intelligent than 20 years ago. But I, I, I think there's a certain layer or um, some sort of nerves in the brain that I just think when you are alone or quiet, um, they fire. And I think they're just not, you know, I just think the brains are probably looking a lot different than they, they used to 20 years ago. Maybe, but you also have to remember, and I can only speak for educational mores in this country, we have become a very um, clinical type of education in which that we teach to a test. So between mm. all of the tests that are done in the public school system and, you know, obviously in private schools too, you know, that you're either me constantly measuring things, but they're not measuring critical thinking. They're measuring if you know, you know, an orca is a whale. They're measuring, you know, so I think students are being taught almost like Jeopardy style, memorize a fact to a question as opposed to how are we thinking about things. And, um, you know, and then the essays that they have to write are so pre-programmed of, you know, how you write it and plug a few facts in and, you know, fact patterns that this whole notion of creativity and, um, you know, being curious about things and really just kind of, you know, pushing yourself in ways that are, you know, just reading a book or being quiet or having having a different way of thinking. And so when I see students get to college and I'll be like, okay, well, you have an assignment due in two weeks. I need you to go out and write me a feature story on a person. You know, a lot of them will look at me like, well, what do you want me to do? I'm like, I just told you what I want you to do. Yeah, but what do I, who do I talk to? I'm like, well, you've got to figure that out. Well, how do I do that? Like, well, that's the question, you know, and I know I'm teaching them a thought process and, you know, I'm really happy. And one of the biggest blessings of what I do is I, when I see them learn and grow and change, there, it's there. It's just I don't see them being forced to work in that way because think about it. Schools are judged by test scores. So it's in their best interest to teach students to think that way so they get a good test score so the teacher can get a raise or the, teacher, you know, the school can keep their funding. So, you know, we've kind of set up a system that is very draconian and it's empirical more than, you know, we've, you know, we're cutting the arts, we're cutting music programs. I mean, you know, that has to have an impact on the brain development or at least the neural paths of how we learn. We have become, to your point that you just um, shared, you know, just into numbers. And yeah, it's, we're it's, data-driven. Say that again? Also, we're data-driven. But yeah. also remember, you have to remember one other thing. There's the rise of fantasy sports. Mm, well, so yeah. fantasy sports is all data-driven. So, you know, we're, it's, we're, 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 you know, and people debating about, you know, saber stuff and war. And, you know, we're, we're, we're very stat-geeky right now. Yeah. Um, so, 
Last question. How did you get into um, concussions and, and writing a book about that? And, and are you also a neurosurgeon for your third job? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, well, a few things. Number one, I've been writing about concussions my entire career. I mean, hmm. you know, I can't tell you how many athletes I have covered that have had concussions. And one of the things that kind of led me to want to know more was around 2010 when I started doing a lot of stuff. I was doing a lot of the blogging for the New York Times for the NHL. And I was writing about Sidney Crosby like over and over and over. And his concussion symptoms were constantly changing. I could not get a doctor for the life of me to tell me, I mean, how does this make sense? That the guy is fine today and tomorrow he's out with a crippling migraine and then two weeks he's seeing another doctor. I mean, I don't understand this progression. I mean, there must be something more going on here than just a concussion. You got to remember, 2010, we were still in the concept that concussion wasn't a big deal. You know, it's just a knock to the head, get up, you know, so what, you got your bell wrong, all those absolutely ridiculous things. So I decided um, I had had a friend who had done this fellowship at the University of Michigan. It's amazing. I mean, you apply for it. It's extremely competitive. But they basically say, you have the entire assets of a world-class institution. What do you want to learn? Do you want to learn art history? I mean, whatever your particular interest is, whether it be esoteric or big, we want to give you a year to take a year off of your career and figure something out. And I proposed, I was at ESPN at the time, and I proposed that I want to literally learn about neurology. I want to learn what the brain does when you get concussed, how it's treated, what is going on. And I was lucky enough to win the fellowship for sports. For, uh, uh, it's called Knight Wallace. And my proposal was that I get embedded with Neurosport, which is basically the one of the best and the first neurology services uh, for athletes. So I was in this clinic, you know, nearly every day. And I watched patients from seven years old, all the way up to former Pro Bowl, you know, Olympians, you name it, come through, and they all had completely different concussion, um, you know, symptoms. I mean, some of them like, yeah, you have concussions, others were much more subtle. And the whole notion of a concussion lasting six months is not true. Your concussion heals, uh, physically heals in like seven to 14 days. Everything after that is something called post-concussion syndrome. And that's when you start getting the migraines and the sleep disturbances and sensitivity. And, you know, an athlete's psyche is very fragile in that playing sports, especially if you go on to become a professional or elite, that's your identity. That's who you are. So if a concussion is taking you away from doing what you love and God forbid you're a player near the end of your career going to free agency, or if you're a female athlete that your very job is being a gymnast and you're probably going to land on your head over and over practicing, that is really scary. And for athletes who are retired, they have a complete loss of identity. I mean, hmm. you're, you're nothing anymore. I mean, I mean, obviously LeBron's going to be whatever, but you know, the other guys on the Lakers that are at the end of the bench, you know, it, they've been the best everywhere they went their whole lives. And now they're going to be in the real world. So there's depression, there's loss of identity, there's sleep disturbances, there's pain. So I learned a heck of a lot. And I was very lucky to be with one of the preeminent doctors in the field. His name is Dr. Jeff Kutcher. And he, you know, he works with pro athletes. And he basically said, okay, you want to learn? Let's go. And he treated me like I was a resident. So I had to read papers and learn stuff. And 
you know, obviously I could ask questions, but it was like a crash medical school. And from that, I really decided there needed to be a book for parents. Because at that time, the concussion discussion, you know, around 2014 was all the NFL athletes, you know, the movie, you know, the book concussion, um, the lawsuits, things like that. But there are more kids playing sports in this country than there are guys in the NFL. And what about all these kids who get hurt? And there's very little research on pediatric neurology, you know, and carnivorous concussion. So um, with the help of Jeff, we decided to write a book talking to parents and coaches about how to deal with this and how to bridge the gap between the parents that were saying, I will never allow my child to play football because it's too dangerous versus the parents were like, well, I played football and I had 15 concussions and I'm fine. Toughen them up. Right. There's a middle road. And um, it's been an amazing journey since and I've been around the world literally talking about this issue, both talking to neurologists about the need to communicate better with the public about what they know, talking to coaches about why we shouldn't be doing the Oklahoma drill anymore in football and why girls that get concussions are different than boys. Uh, uh, you know, ADHD elements, I mean, they're it's so complex. And uh, I feel very blessed that I've been able to walk in a world that is super complicated and I am so far from being a neurological expert, so I'm funny, but I know enough to be dangerous. And that has let me bridge the gap between the world of sports journalism and the world of neurology and the world of sports and have that intersectional conversation in a lot of different ways. Wow. How hard is it for athletes to make the transition from their sports um, to the real world. I was thinking of like the Delonte Wests, and I know that's an extreme example, but, right. and again, I'm not trying to, I'm using the money example only because we live in this world where money is sexy and it's assumed yeah. that it's assumed. Power. Yeah. And it's assumed that if you have all that money, these women, men are happy and their lives are great. So I, I am curious, I guess my last point here before I let you go, uh, I, I guess I sometimes feel like you know, I'm an artist, and it's it's fucking hard to make millions of dollars. It's hard to make a hundred thousand dollars a year writing. I mean, all these newspapers are closing. I think as a result of technology, uh, I promise I'll get back to the sports uh, athletes pro their career. But I think because of tech, journalists are losing their career. People don't want to pay for music anymore. Uh, and now with uh, COVID, the movie industry is you know shutting down. I mean, I know they're back in sort of production. I think making a living as an artist now is almost impossible. Um, and so when I see these, these salaries, uh, it, it is sort of you know, reemphasizing the glory of money. So I guess back to my original point and question, do you have stories or is it really hard for athletes to make that transition from the sports world to the real world? Yes, it's, it's terribly hard. And you got to remember, there is a vast majority of athletes, at least at the Olympic level, that can be extremely successful and not make a dime. It's like archers, bobsledders. I mean, there's mm. people that work their butts off you know, Paralympians, there's people that are amazing and they're literally funding their own careers. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of work with uh, writing about Paralympians and, you know, one bike for them is $9,000, wow. you know, and, and that's what you need. I mean, you need that carbon fiber bikes to compete. And yet no one's coming to say, hey, here's your check for $9,000. So uh, depending on the sport, I mean, you know, I've done a lot with figure skating. It's not uncommon to hear about families that have taken out three mortgages on their house 
to fund the coaches and the training, you know, and a pair of skates is $2,000 and a new competition costume is $1,000 and the travel to Vienna for four people for a week of comp. Yeah. I mean, it keeps adding up. And the really sad part is you can be extremely successful and then it ends. Hmm. It ends. And then what are you? And there's a lot of, you know, I've talked to enough Olympians that they go through a significant depression because think about it. You've spent your entire life working for one thing and now it's here. And what if your fourth place finish is the best you've ever done in your whole life? Like you like were amazing, but you're in fourth place. We don't give a crap if you finish fourth in the Olympics. You're never going to get mentioned. We don't even mention people that get silver or bronze medals. We are gold medal or bust. Hmm. And then you take other people that maybe had a cup of coffee in the NBA or made it to the G League or played at AAA baseball. They were the best person on every single team they played on. They were awesome. And now, see ya. And they might have incomplete educations. They might have had reading or emotional disabilities that were never addressed because you know what, let's not bother X. He's going to go to the NFL. So he's not going to have to learn this. They, and then the bonus round is what about the damage that's been done to your body from the sport you played that you, you know, if I play at the university of Michigan, play football and my knees keep giving out five years after I played, but I didn't make it to the NFL. Michigan's not going to pay me for, to have knee replacements or ACL surgery. Cause I'm done. So they're left with a lot of identity issues, physical issues, and the assumption from the public, oh, well, you play the NBA, you must be rich. Hmm. Really? What about a guy who, you know, is a really good golfer? He's on the tour, but what if he's finishing 100th at the Waste Management Open and getting a check for $4,000? Yeah. But the whole thing is, look how we elevate athletes. Like, oh, my gosh, you're a pro golfer. That's awesome. Yeah, well, it is. But look how hard he has to. I mean, and especially the sports where if you don't finish in the money, you don't get paid. The pressure is horrible. At least, you know, if I'm in the NBA and I'm sitting on the very end of the bench for the Pistons, I still get a paycheck. You know, if I'm the worst player on the Cleveland, I won't say the Indians, the former the team formerly known right. uh, as uh, the Indians, you know, I still get a paycheck if they lose 162 games. I get nothing if I lose, you know, hardly anything if I lose the first round of a tennis tournament. And that wears on people. So then they're done. Their career is over. And then who are you? Do you go into coaching? Do you leave it all behind? And, you know, it's, it's really hard. Now, I will say this. The U.S. Olympic Committee, from what I know... And, and I think the NBA, too, they really started some focused programs on helping people transition. Like, let's have the conversation. Uh, I know some universities are fantastic about inviting athletes back to finish their degrees that they left early, you know, ha- you know, ha- putting classes online or figure out a way to get them done. So we have more of an acknowledgement now about that you don't, you know, go to athlete heaven, but especially for male athletes where it's been their whole identity that you have been the guy since you were nine years old. And not just that your family has had status in your town because you are the guy, man, it's not easy. It's not easy. And it's just, you see it from high schools, the people that put their kids, you know, my my son's number 99 on the football team on the front lawn. That's not normal. But I mean, they build this whole identity up and when it ends, and here's the thing, even for LeBron, 
is going to end. But LeBron, you can already tell, has set himself up business-wise to do other things. And yes, he has the money understood. But I've been around enough athletes where I've been there and I knew their career was over because I saw the torn knee or I saw the Tommy John or, you know, catastrophic injury. And I've talked to them a couple of days later and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. This was it. I think it's it's very similar you know you see the the artists on stage for two hours and you think that they've got the greatest life ever but you don't i mean i've done limited touring but i, I know people that tour much more extensively than i do and it, it's really freaking hard and challenging and it's not that glorious world i mean sure there may be the stings and the bonos that are taking private jets everywhere but that's not the majority of how they're actually functioning day to day well it's an artificial life that they lead you know i mean i've been I love being a sports writer because I get to see the circus and then go home. Hmm. You know, I get to leave it behind. And uh, one of my discoveries during the pandemic has been uh, the Korean band BTS. I've gotten really into BTS. (laughs) And uh, they have really opened up their lives on YouTube, really showing the stress of, you know, physically performing for two hours, how they're, they're exhausted or they're hurt or how, you know, one guy cut his foot uh, on some piece of metal that was on the stage and, like, was really, you know, it was in trouble. Or it's just the anxiety of constantly being surrounded by people wanting something from you or the pressure. And I, you know, I really appreciate that about them because a lot of times we only want to see, you know, a, 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 the, the the phrase that comes to my mind is nobody wants to hear about the labor pains. They only want to see the pretty baby. And especially for things that we escape to, we don't want to hear that the things aren't awesome because we want someplace to escape to with them. Like if I go see U2 for two hours, I want to be in U2's world. I don't want to hear that Bono's, you know, depressed or the edge, you know, his back's killing him or whatever. I just want to see the glory. And especially with sports, we're watching people at the very peak of the human body, acknowledging that they're anything but that mentally, physically, and emotionally is devastating. And to your point about Woj, in your mind, like, well, that guy's making 147 million, so everything's got to be good for him. I don't know. Is it? Yeah. I, I think t- I have He's to bring up. Well, I have to bring up my last point. I, LeBron James, I, I just, in everything that we've sort of talked about, I, I think he's superhuman. That's just beyond really no injuries other than two years ago. And it wasn't, you know, obviously life-threatening or anything like that. I mean, he came back the next year. And just to handle kids, social media, Cleveland, Miami, back to Cleveland, L.A., businesses, Hollywood, I, I, I think this man could do anything. And I don't know if it's him, his team, combination um, I just, I don't think we really, I know a lot of, uh, people want to compare him to Jordan and, and Kobe, but I just, I think he is just on a whole other level. Well, and I will say this, um, I've been around LeBron a lot cause obviously the Pistons and the Cavaliers have a little bit of a history sure. uh, from that time, but you gotta remember, you know, LeBron's mom had him when I think she was like 15 years old, Yeah, you know, it could have gone really sideways. You know, it was tough for her, tough for him. 
you know, going straight from high school with the expectations of like, you know, he's, there's a lot of parallels between him and Tiger Woods. Like people have always known he was Mm. the chosen one. And to go from that straight to the NBA as a man child. So, cause think about it. You're still 17 years old. Physically, he's a man. Sure. But emotionally and mentally, you're still 17 years old. And now you're hanging out with a bunch of 28 year old guys that like, you can't even, you know, you know, Drink. you should be off a college kid, you know, go whatever. So he had that. And then the pressure of being in Cleveland and then the whole concept of growing up, you know, in a very, you know, challenging way of, you know, basically growing up in the NBA and then making it all work. I think the one thing I know about LeBron is he has had a very strong, loyal, and true group of friends around him since the start. And you always see the same people around and they have his back. He has theirs, you know, his wife and him have been together forever. And, you know, she really seems to be a rock for him. And I, you, you just, LeBron, he's not perfect, but he has stability to him. Uh, Jordan obviously was awesome on the court, but he was a mess off the court. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of drama going on, and I don't judge, but it's just the truth. And Kobe, I mean, you know, Kobe was amazing on the court, but let's not get it twisted. Some really crazy and bad things happen off the court, you know, like Colorado and some of the other things. So I, I LeBron has gone to me in its totality ahead of both of them because he has not only kept it together and won and all the other stuff, but I look at all the stuff he's done off the court from the school to opportunities he's building while he's in the NBA. Cause you know, magic's done the same thing, but he did it when he got out. Right. LeBron's doing it real time. Yeah. And, I guess um, it's amazing. Yeah. I guess that was my point and you proved it perfectly. It, you know, it's hard, first of all, to compare, talent on the court but when you bring up all the other arenas that you just did i just it's it's amazing it's i i just it's amazing and i'm happy i'm I'm truly happy for lebron because you know i know how much he means to people and i know how much good he's doing that school alone is doing unbelievable amounts of good and you know he's i think he's truly still engaged even though he's a multi 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 millionaire living in a palace I think he's still in touch with the person he was and where he came from. And even though he's all L.A. and awesome now, I think at the end, if you ask him, who are you? He'll say, I'm a kid from Akron. I mean, he will, he, he knows who he is. He knows where he's from. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he's had the chance to enjoy a good life, a good life at home, a good life on the court. You know, he's represented Team USA very well. I mean, I've I've been around Team USA at the Olympics, and LeBron gets, like, you know, 90% of the media, and he handles it with grace and class and a smile. And, like, he gets it. He really gets it. And I'm sure it's not easy. And I'm sure there's times he'd like to say, you know, get the hell away from me. Just leave me alone. But he gets it. And I think you saw that at Kobe's memorial of how he really, you know, he was grief-stricken. But he understood what his role was at that time, both to represent for Kobe's family, but also for Lakers fans and the NBA. And he stood up and was a leader. And that's something you can't teach people. Either you embrace it or you don't. And he does. Yeah. You know, I I could talk to you for hours, but I know our time's limited and I don't want to keep talking to you. There's so many. I'm just to me, sports sort of has a strange cultural, it fits in and it brings people together and it's interesting. It mirrors it, but it doesn't. But it's also... Um, I, it just has this strange 
I, I have a lot of curiosity to the way it fits into our society. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, a lot of people think it's the last true religion we have in American society. More people before pandemic obviously attended sports on the weekends than they do go to church. Yeah. And sports is the cultural fabric that holds us together. And also, you know, leave all the political protests behind. More people identify as sports fans than do political parties or political, um, you know, causes or religions right now. So, you know, it's 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 tribal. It's it's, it's tribal. It's primal. It's regional. It's you know, saying that you're a Laker fan when you live in Cleveland versus you know saying you know I you know I mean there's a lot of nuance to saying you're a sports fan. And now that we're a global society, you might get American kids just as likely saying, I'm a Manchester United fan, you know, and then mention I also like the Cubs. So we've become very global, and I think that's really exciting. But sports is, I think, one of the last true commonalities we all can share. We can all sit down and watch the Olympics. We all can sit down and watch the Super Bowl. I don't know too many other events that we do that anymore. Yeah. So go sports. (laughs) <laughs> the Bachelor, The Bachelorette. Uh, I've never <laughs> no, watched. Bachelor, me neither. So I'm, I'm kidding. It's I was Bachelor free. So. I was trying to pick. I've never watched. Just trying to pick a ridiculous show that people seem to be obsessed with. Uh, well, Joanne, I appreciate you taking the time. This will yep. go live. Like uh, it'll go live next week. But it means a lot that you okay. spent it. This was great. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. And uh, anybody that comes recommended by Matt Derry is good in my books. So. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've known him since high school, since probably we were like 12. So, yeah. So are you from Manor or Willoughby or where are you no, from? No, I'm from uh, originally from Shaker Heights and then we moved to Pepper Pike. Okay, because my brother lives in Chardon. So. Okay, yeah. Uh, and Chardon won their first state title since 1995 this year. So big deal. That is big a big deal. Big deal on the uh, east side, yes. They went 12-0. and 0. And almost blew up the world with excitement. So that's uh, so uh, Matt always gives me crap about my brother living in Chardon. And yes, they have like five feet of snow on the ground already. So you know it's all good. <laughs> but yes, I'm I'm aware of the, the the Pepper Pike and Shaker Heights in the world. And actually, a uh, flip I think Flip Saunders was from Shaker Heights. Yes, uh-huh. if I remember correctly. So yes, because I went to Flip's parents' house. But if people want to, if people want to find you, um, not on social media, but like if, if they're interested in hearing more about journalism and sports journalism, where would you suggest they go? Uh, they can go to my website, joannegerster.com, or uh, I get a contact on there for email, or they can reach out to me on Twitter. So Joanne C. Gerstner. So I, it, I hide in plain sight. I guess also though, like any books that you would recommend if there was somebody out there that was interested in getting into sports journalism, something you would suggest they read. Uh, there's a series called, it's an anthology that comes out each year. It's called the best, um, best sports writing in America. And it's it's just an amazing collection of stuff, but I would read that. I read everything. So I read, you know, stuff that's an Esquire. Um, I really like reading SL Price, formerly of Sports Illustrated. Uh, I read a lot of stuff. So, but I'd say probably the best, uh, best American sports writing each, like I said, they've come out every year. So you can just pick a year and it's just a great cross section of stuff. Cool. So, but I read, I read everything from Hemingway sports writing up to things, uh, you know, on the ringer. So I'm all over the place, but I'm a very much a reader. So I, I, I encourage my students and everybody just, you know what, there's no such thing as what I recommend. Just go get it and read it. Cool. Start some read. Yeah. Awesome. This is great. I really appreciate your Absolutely. time. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I uh, wish you luck. And if you need anything else, let me know. Thanks, okay? man. You got it. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.